This is Bale Street, crime, finance, and everything in between. Hosted by Ira Jettleson, bail bondsman to the stars, and Danny Moses of The Big Short fame, this is Bale Street. Welcome to Bale Street. I'm Danny Moses. I'm Ira Jettleson. Today we have a packed show. We have the senior reporter for Barron's, who's been a veteran on Wall Street for years now. Uh, Mary Childs is joining us. Hey, Mary. Let's get right to Mary Childs. Mary, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. You got it. Uh, so let's go over your background a little bit. I know you worked, uh, you're worked. you currently working at Barron's. You're currently writing a book about PIMCO and Bill Gross. We can mm-hmm. talk about that. You worked at Bloomberg for years, and on the tail end of the credit crisis, in the beginning of the European crisis, you were... You were sitting in that seat. I want mm-hmm. to talk about that. I want to talk about the whale trade and many other things. I want to talk about your comment on private prisons, which we talk about on the show a lot, and how that relates to ESG investing and so forth. So why don't we start maybe with your background, how, how you got to where you are now, and then we can go from there. Sure. Um, so I majored in business journalism, actually an undergrad, a uh, bit of an unusual program, but I just kind of knew that that's what I wanted to be doing um, and got sort of immediately funneled into Bloomberg News, which is a great training ground, learned so much. They kind of cycle you through different uh, teams. So you get to know, okay, I covered stocks, I covered EM, I covered currencies, and you get a little bit of a feel for the way money moves. And then I just fell in love with credit default swaps, which is the most embarrassing thing anyone could say. I know, I know. You're talking to a big short guy over here. So (laughs) There's at least one audience member for that that comment. It took Ira 20 episodes, CDS, credit default swaps. He's got it. Uh, Yeah, I finally picked up on it at the 19th. Yeah. Yeah, but it was kind of at the tail end, as you say, where I'd I'd missed the crisis. I started covering it in 2009, 2010, and I was like, is the party still going? And no, it really really wasn't. But there was sort of still a market at that time where, you know, there was some trading banks still had desks sort of. And so there was enough for me to do. I had a daily column and it was so fun to kind of own this market by myself, you know, just wandering around interviewing people, well, what's going on today? What is the CDX index doing today? And that was a real education. So right, more of picking up the pieces of what, of what was exactly. left and seeing who was left. And that leads us to the whale trade, which in 2012, it was hard to believe after all of that that you got to experience something right after I that, know. right away. And of course, nobody went to prison. Two people were charged over in Europe. Bruno's boss and Bruno's junior mm-hmm. were charged. I don't think there's been any update to that. Maybe a fine was paid, but... No, they maybe. actually ended up... I, I don't remember the exact right terms, but they basically vacated anything. They had to drop everything because they <laughs> decided that Bruno Ixel was not a reliable witness because he kind of was trying to tell them the whole story and all of the context and this and that. And they were like, uh, but your story's changing. And I think they just decided they couldn't trust him. So why don't we tell the audience just because we're going to post your article. I know it was written in 2012, I believe. 100 years ago. Yeah, 100 years ago. It feels like about exactly what happened. And then what is your mindset for these days of Wall Street still getting away with, I believe, not murder is too strong of a word, <laughs> but in a way, these these are crimes. But, you know. Well, they've cracked down on Wall Street a lot in the last few years. You've seen that. Michael Lewis always, when he was on the show, he said, these aren't really crimes, per, right. you know, in My- mainstream, but they're they're financial crimes, so to speak. Well, but. Mike Michael has been going after Wall Street for years now. Well, he makes a living off of it. <laughs> so, Mary, you're and you're kind of what what you saw there, what you experienced, and what you thought was fair or unfair as a result. I'd love to get your sure. Take. So, um, this was in 2012. Um, again, the credit derivative market was kind of a shadow of its former self, but there was still you know enough liquidity, um, mostly because there were some legacy books that the banks were still maintaining. One of which was at J.P. Morgan, and J.P. Morgan had this department in London, basically that was like air traffic control, watching for risk. 
across the bank. And so they were supposed to offset, okay, if you have way too much airline exposure, lay it off in some other way somewhere else. And it basically was supposed to like patch the holes. But sometimes it got a little proprietary in the difference between like patching holes on risk versus proprietary trading, taking a view in what's going to happen in the market. There's kind of a fine line and it's you, you have to be a therapist to figure out what someone was thinking. So in basically, this this guy in London got a little over his skis and managed to have a majillion dollar, that's a very technical term, um, position in credit default swaps at a time when no one else did. And so they called him a whale. They called him the London whale. And there was sort of this extremely huge blow up at JP Morgan because he was, frankly, he ended up being right, but the timing was wrong, which in financial markets, that's we everything. Know. <laughs> exactly. Rise and fall, long term capital when genius failed, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, JP Morgan ended up losing $6.2 billion over time after Jamie Dimon was like, oh, it's nothing. Oh, it's no problem. I have the right to rely on my lieutenants. You know, it's a tempest in a teapot. It was a big deal. So, um, yeah, so he ended up basically trying to be an informant and and to your point his boss and his underling sort of got thrown under the bus but he alleges that there's actually this huge conspiracy more or less I mean he bless his heart is still living this right like it's been six years and he is still very much like trying to tell people what actually happened and that no this was not I was not a rogue trader I was never a rogue trader you know I was doing what Jamie Dimon wanted me to do right Ina took the fall of course they had mm-hmm. a woman take the fall I'm so also. surprised yeah. yeah I'm really shocked I by hope that. she and like Zoe Cruz and everybody they, I hope right they exactly <laughs> And the reason I bring that up is because that was right when Dodd-Frank was being written, right? And the rules were coming out. Mm-hmm. And now we're going backwards, right? We're going right. to strip out. Now, some may you could argue some were too harsh on the small banks we've talked about in the show before. But we're setting this up again for another risky whale trade situation. And that's what I want to get your opinion on. Do you think that's – would you be shocked if we see it in the next couple of years based on <sighs> bond market It would be hard to do – yeah, I mean, that's such a good question because it would be hard to do starting like now, right? Like because they'd had to comply with these regulations for a minute, there's – like they're cleaner than they would have been. So like from a standing start, you're you're at least – you've got at least that cushion. So but from there, you know, bonds are so, so expensive right now and everyone's kind of migrating into private debt and private loans and trying to figure out, okay, well, maybe I'll get a little bit more yield if I just go a little bit further out the maturity curve or the risk spectrum or or the liquidity spectrum and just sacrifice here and there to try desperately to make more yield, yeah, that that can be a terrible recipe for basically accruing a whole bunch of yield that you don't necessarily understand and we all find out later how interconnected it was. Right. It do, would not shock me. Stuff's hidden off balance sheets. I mean, hidden is the wrong word, but it can stay off balance sheets because right. you can own less than 10%. So I will not be shocked if the rate move, the rates always cause right. Some type of market disruption. Right. It's the tide going out. So we'll see what happens. But Ira, I want to get you involved here because, uh, yeah, you know, it's sitting over here. Well, I heard Jamie Dimon's name, and I'm not a huge fan. You're not a huge fan? Not at all. Not after what he did with the uh, cryptocurrency world. Interesting. Oh, well, that, I, well, re- I invested really... in crypto. I begged him not to, but he did, and now he's losing money. Well, this he is... blames Jamie Dimon. Well, Jamie Dimon came out and claims that uh, crypto was a complete fraud and then, a had a, and then had his daughter buy a ton of crypto in uh, overseas. So... I don't know. I think maybe Mary can help verify that. I don't know. Mary, I think that's true. <laughs> okay. Don't comment. Please on look that. into it. Anyway, he gave you an opportunity to buy more, which you did, which was a mistake. Thank you. But we talk about this. We've talked about on the show um, ESG investing, you know, uh, environmental social governance. And I feel like with Trump and just business leaders in general, we're moving towards that where people can actually affect change. Mm-hmm. And I know you've written about it. And one area in particular is private prisons, which comes up on most of our shows and how much money they're making. Um, right now and with the current policies in place. So 
Love to get your thoughts on that. I know you you wrote an article a couple weeks ago yeah. in Barron's, but love to get your thoughts there too. Sure. So it's a it's a tough one. So I have sort of a, an ideological uh, debate with a bunch of people. I mean, everyone's having this debate. I guess it's not just me. Where um, is it actually? Can ESG actually outperform? Right. Like that's the question. Can it be a good thing for your investing portfolio to invest in things that are better for the earth? I have a little bit of a hard time. There are studies that show that, yes, it does outperform. I struggle personally because I think about, okay, we constructed this world, this financial market, and our ideas of property and ownership accordingly to not include environmental factors and social factors. And so now we're trying to, like, bolt them back in and pretend, like, I, ju- I, I struggle to, to envision a light switch flipping and we're like, actually, yeah, we're going to go ahead and factor in the carbon emissions that you're producing and the environmental waste you're dumping and all of this. Like, there's not – I just don't see that happening at least not in the next, like, two X years. So I struggle with that side of it. However, at the same time, there is there are studies that do show that it does outperform and there is such a movement now where we sort of increasingly have – this I call it this is like a little bit offensive but it's like a tribal self-identification where we're like this is who I am like I don't use this company I use that company because I believe in XYZ like I don't eat at Chick-fil-A I don't buy Starbucks whatever it might be and I'm very curious to see how that nets out across the country because in New York you might think oh how could this company survive because everyone I know doesn't eat Chick-fil-A and then like, like the rest Chick- of the country I, like I mean I love Chick-fil-A it's yeah, delicious just, as long as we get <laughs> that out there you just can't enjoy it on Sundays Ira. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, but across the country, like, how does that actually net? And I'm not sure. So I think, I mean, I think that remains to be seen. But as people continuously vote with their dollars, it it can provide some kind of, you know, sea change for corporations trying to confront who they're addressing and, and how. Wait, well, it, it might not change earnings. It could hurt their stock price. So those are two different things. They, may, yeah. they might change the multiple where the stock trades. So, of course, that always hits them right in the wallet, which is where it counts. But with all these ETFs, Mm-hmm. which now are the majority owners of all of these stocks. BlackRock, it's good to see at least, is making noise about ESG investing because – Right, but what are they actually doing about it? What are they doing it? about it? Nothing. But my point <laughs> is it would take – if you want to help mom and pop, it's really in that channel because mm-hmm. that if you want to affect change, it needs to come through through that market because yeah. that's really where changes would occur in my opinion. And But if you're but a fiduciary, is it actually in your interest to press these companies and say like, no, I need you to, to you know pay more for – cardboard that comes from xyz forest instead of that forest because this one's environmentally sustainable when you know as a fiduciary are you actually are you looking out for your your you know the the people who bought your etf or are you looking out for the people who bought your etf and their generations 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 right i guess if you were able to really affect change or changing laws of what can be consumed what's illegal what can be imported in terms of product materials then you could then you could say you could have people looking out whistleblowing we'll talk about later what the companies are actually uh, doing when they say they're doing one thing and not the other. But, you know, but I do think it's a movement and I think it's going to kind of conjoin, not the midterms per se, but right. over the next couple of years, I feel like it's going to be one of those. One Mary, of how do you bigger... feel about whistleblowers? Um, can you be more specific? How do you feel about rats? <laughs> <laughs> I dislike rats in my home. So you, you have a problem <laughs> with somebody just blowing the whistle in on Wall Street people all day long? Um, no, I mean, I think that it can be a really good and powerful thing if there certainly as a journalist, I in large part rely on whistleblowers, right? right? Like if you have a whistleblow, call me. But I do think, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think if you object to something morally within your corporation, yeah, you should, you should call it. You should call it. Yeah. I mean, I don't We've like We've argued mice. about this. Ira, Theranos, I'll go back to the argument. I don't think, have you written on Theranos before? No. Okay. Just read. Well, that whistleblowing, first of all, probably saved another couple hundred million dollars to people that were going to make additional investments in it, which was, and maybe save lives because it was mm-hmm. producing false blood tests. 
So, you know, we went over this. Yeah. So I argue, why is that a bad thing? Because we go back to the same thing, as really? we said. Rats? Yeah. I mean, okay. you know, there's, there's a time and a place for everything. And if people are going to get paid for whistleblowing, then it's going to become, it's going to get out of control. Okay. How do you know what's true and what's not true? Well, got to prove it. Right. Well, Isn't it just verifying the claims? I don't know. I don't think you get paid to be a whistleblower if there's, like, Correct. no meat to it. Or are you whistleblowing? Well, so they, o- they only pay, yeah, they only pay on truth. 10 to 30%. You didn't listen on the show no, at all. No. <laughs> I'm going to send it back to you. Oh. Um, within that realm, there's obviously Trump is anti-whistleblowing because it can only get him in trouble, and mm-hmm. you know, unless it was saving his own ass, right, of course. Um, but back to his uh, – he, he, he found Jerome Powell recently. He found him six months ago, but he's now getting more on him. He wants to blame mm-hmm. him. I'm sure he's setting him up to blame when the market cracks because rates are moving higher. So mm-hmm. what are you seeing down in Washington in general, uh, people changing behavior, how that's – how that's really impacting – really, I want to bring it back to fixed income because you just wrote about the direct lending market. Yeah. Higher rates. You yeah. Know, what that means in general, you think, across the board for cost of capital. And I always bring it back to Trump because he wants he, – I think he knows deep down he's a real estate guy. High, high right. rates are never good. So Right. So, I mean, there's a lot of talk about kind of the Fed's independence and, and to what extent he can influence the Fed and Jerome Powell. And, and I think that's an open question. I think, you know, they, it's supposed to be independent. You know, it's better, you know, <laughs> if it is. But they do have a very delicate balance. And there's so much noise right now that, like, anything that they put out there is subject to so much scrutiny from, you know, market participants and investors, but also from the president. So I think that adds an added, you know, that's just like a new layer of pressure that heretofore was at least not as overt. So that's one thing. But I do think in this, you know, extremely high valuation world, higher interest rates are a little scary, right? Like we were talking about the private debt market. So increasingly on Wall Street, from KKR to Carlyle to Aries, all these companies, these giant money managers, they've kind of saturated the private equity market. They've kind of saturated traditional bond markets, just in, you know, buying and selling publicly traded bonds. And they're like, well, what do we do now? So in large part, they've kind of migrated into private debt, which is Honestly, it's kind of funny because it's so basic. It's just literally lending to small companies, like here's a loan. And, you know, it's usually a little bit more expensive than in the public markets because, there's, you know, nobody's competing for that loan. So you pay a little bit of a premium and they're delighted to, you know, the companies that are doing the lending are delighted to get that extra premium because they've been, you know, really starved for years. But when these companies, these are typically smaller companies that they don't syndicate their loans because they're too small. So they have smaller earnings. So they have fewer business lines and therefore fewer levers to pull when something goes awry. So if you're a large diversified organization and abruptly no one's buying your widgets in Ohio anymore, congratulations, you have other business lines that are going to maybe make up the difference or at least allow you to buy time. If you don't have that, if you're just a widget maker in Ohio and you have a loan that has an 8, 9, 10% interest rate, what are you going to do? So that's, to me, the real question when this becomes – when you know interest rates get higher and if there's a knock-on effect in the broader economy, which often happens, and suddenly people – consumers are like, I don't really need this widget. I'm going to pull back a little bit, which we are seeing a very sensitive consumer. We are seeing a lot of really stretched buyers. If you know they miss a payment, they it, it just really shows up quickly in their uh, – in credit card receivables and things. So there is this kind of tension for consumers – that will then have a knock-on effect because so much of our economy is based on consumption. What I love about lenders is they say, oh, it's a floating rate loan, so rates go up, we make more. I'm like, yeah, right. and the borrower needs to pay more. Literally. I, they never, in, in you know, the second side of the argument. So right. it's more expensive to conduct business. So that was a great article that you wrote, and I think we're probably a little premature in the sense, but it is a setup, and it is probably going to be happening. And, co- you know, covenant light loans, covenant 
light loans, IRA. Like, you know, you know what that is? Is that similar to, like, the payday loans? No, but that's another disaster that's now coming back because the CFPB has been emasculated. But, but no, the cover light loans, like, you can lend without terms. Like, you can, you can payment in kind. You, there's a lot of things that have changed, so they've loosened standards. So it's an open loan. Well, no, they've loosened the standards. You can borrow easily. The joke was that it used to be in a lot of these, especially for the smaller companies, they were like, oh, you can't get up and go to the bathroom without calling your lender. Like, it is restrictive. And now a lot of that's fallen away. It's a little bit – it's better in the private loan market than it ha- than it is in the public loan because, again, there's less competition. People, It's not like a food fight to lend to these companies as much, but it's becoming that. So you're seeing these covenants. So one interesting thing about the covenant loosening over time, because they don't have these promises, like covenants really just – bring the negotiators back to the table, right? So if you're the company and the lender, you have to be like, okay, you triggered this thing. You promised you wouldn't do it. You did the thing. Let's talk. What do we need to do? And you have this kind of ongoing conversation. But if you don't have that trigger, these companies don't have to come talk to you again. They just are out there running. So it actually in some ways delays the default cycle, but also exacerbates it. Is so there any the collateral behind these loans? Mm-hmm. There are, but, yeah. yeah but I mean, some, there's a company. Yeah, but sometimes they're lending at 120% of the value of the collateral like exactly. in some of these cases. So, so it's almost a little similar to my industry. Yeah, a little bit. A little yeah. bit. Underwriting in the, yeah. yeah. Yeah, except you can get Dog the Bounty Hunter to go get the person if they don't pay. Well, the dog's a joke, but I, I no, can get some Yeah. I can get I guess we're not having him on as a guest No, we're not having Okay, them. thanks a lot. So that same comment you made about the consumer is, is a little bit extended. I bring this back again to the uh, CFPB which is being stripped of its regulatory power. We've talked about this before. I don't think people realize, as consumers, the ones that are voting, yay, take all the regulations, they're the ones, especially, I think, in the blue st- in the red states, being that are going to have higher credit card payments. Because if you miss a credit card payment, mm-hmm. under the CFPB's watch, at least, credit card companies weren't able to really jack up the rates from, let's say, 5.99 to 14.99. That stuff's all going away. In the student lending market, news came out today that the head of the student lending business within the uh, CFPB, the guy that was watching over, left today because they've stripped all the ability. So people with student loans, people with credit card bills, people with auto loans, late payment charges that they're getting, it's all going to be worse. So it'll all get exacerbated. So what just your thoughts on the CFPB in general? I mean, I think it's scary. I think you're right. People aren't quite aware as consumers of the things that are in place, like the degree to which they can sue in a class action group or can represent themselves or can fight back in any way. And I feel like in this, in our economy, we've had a bit of an evolution where very quietly and slowly over time, those rights have been, it feels like eroded. And especially as we like very casually and cavalierly sacrifice a lot of our privacy and what we can do, what people can do with our information. So as consumers not having any of those protections or at least not having as robust of protections, yeah, I think it's really scary. And I think that that, I don't know how that will show up if that's going to abruptly mean, okay, everybody's credit card, you know, rates jump and then everyone is in bankruptcy and it's just like, I don't know how that ends, but it doesn't, it feels a little scary. Yeah. Yeah. More, more money to big business and out of the consumer's pocket. Um, so before we get to Tesla, I just want to touch on one other thing because mm-hmm. I love talking about Tesla. I at least that's something you can it's a, you can touch it. It's a car. It's not some credit default swap that's in the ether. But so you're writing a book about Pimco, mm-hmm. um, and really about I assume from when the time that Bill Gross built the company to when he left is that accurate? Yeah. Or, okay. 
So can you share anything? And I know it's coming out soon, or are you like Oh, my God, discuss- no, I'm still rewriting it. But okay. it's, um, yeah, it's been, never write a book. It takes forever. Um, <laughs> that seems like it was obvious to that everyone That was a Dr. Else, Seuss book. Ira, that's Dr. Seuss. You no, no, I wrote a book. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, that's right. He did write a book, The Fixer. We'll talk about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, if you have any tips on how to finish a book, just let me know. Not how to sell a book. That's the- Well, selling is not, selling was the problem. For right. Writing, it was easy. Right. Um, the tips are basically just, uh, you know, save from the heart and get as much facts and knowledge as you can hmm. that's very helpful what else do you want me to tell no, that's good so give me a little give me a little, <laughs> and, and a little no, no, Simon & Schuster really help you oh, okay great are you, are you working with them no I'm working with FSG so I don't think Simon & Schuster will help me okay yeah. well they didn't help you no they didn't okay <laughs> alright let's talk about the book <laughs> Uh, right. So it starts basically in 2006. Um, the first draft I wrote started in 1966, which then somewhat obviously was really boring. Uh, I just like plotted through time and I was like, and then Bill Gross was 32. And it was, it was he was bad. a Marine, wasn't he? he? Yeah, he went to Vietnam. Yeah. Um, he has some interesting stories. He was mostly um, like the most the closest to the action he says that he got was he was on like a little he used to take the um, the Marines out on a boat and like they would jump into the water and swim to shore. And he was sitting on that boat waiting and like heard stuff. Um, and I don't know that that's the full story, but that's the only thing he's publicly said. So right. that's what. So it we're means. not going to see a chapter on his military. Not so. really. No, we might okay. see some flashbacks, but right. not any um, substantial. The first draft, yes, I belabored it, but, okay. um, <laughs> but right. hopefully this time, no. Right. Um, so basically, the the better draft starts in '06 and walks through the housing crisis, how they knew really before anyone else, how they saw so clearly that there was this kind of huge bubble in housing that not only not only was it a bubble, but how it affected the rest of the financial system, that there was this kind of huge and unseen problem of interconnectedness and this just hollowness of, of all of the leverage and all the loans that everyone and, and the, the intertwining counterparty risk, everyone was sort of in this horrible boat together. So PIMCO did a better job at seeing that. And so Really, the book looks at how they did that, how they were better prepared, how they rose to such prominence, managed to really dominate financial markets for so long, and especially in and after the crisis, basically dictating how the U.S. handled a lot of their crisis response stuff. And then in the aftermath, did great, did great, did great. And then Bill kind of misstepped. You know, he was the CIO and co-founder from the 70s, but and this great, brilliant trader. But in 2011, he made this like kind of wacky call about U.S. treasuries. He was like, sell them. Got zero in my portfolio the everything's going to go to hell and then it just like didn't and you know there was it was mid euro crisis so i think he didn't foresee the rest of, anyway basically from then from 2013 we had the taper tantrum and it appears as though his investing strategy more or less has kind of fallen away and at the same time at pimco if you can't perform if, if your pnl your profit and loss is not you know if you're not killing it in the market no one will listen to you 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 have no armor you're very exposed and everyone can just come for you so you have to have that kind of credibility in the market in order to basically a function and b present your ideas and thrive and if you're the cio and you're supposed to be leading everybody and you don't have that credibility. Basically, all of the other traders were kind of like, well, what are we doing here? Not only did they sort of smell blood, but they were like, this is no longer, you know, his his leadership. He was never really a people person, so he wasn't really a delight to no work with. No one was with. supervising him either, right? He was, exactly. Yeah. He was very difficult to supervise because he started the thing. It was, basically, he was the last of the co-founders still there. And so what are you going to tell him not to do something? It's his own company. And what are you going to say? At that point, they were already owned by... Allianz, right. correct? Yeah. yeah. Allianz bought in uh, 2000. So, yeah. yeah. So it's basically how they came to such prominence and dominance and then how the uh, bill ended up getting himself quit fired from his own firm. Did you follow the story? Does it take you to Janice? Or it does, yeah. It does, okay. Yeah. And so is it a po- does it paint him in a positive light or just more as a character on Wall Street that's kind of seen it all? 
Uh, I struggle with the like positive versus negative uh, a whole idea because he's a human being. So I think I hope it's empathetic. You know, he was really hard on a lot of people, and a lot of people came away from that with like significant, you know, damage. Yeah, yeah. and and I think and you know all those people want to tell me how awful he was. So I, I certainly want to be judicious and and in, include that stuff because it's real and it's true. But I also want to be empathetic and kind because he is a human being and he knows his shortcomings. He's he'll be the first to tell you about all of them. So I do think yeah he he's not going to come away from it like looking better than he is. But I also don't think he's going to come away from it looking worse right okay good so from one kind of ceo-ish type guy to another let's talk <laughs> about uh lon musk here um so from a corporate governance perspective which is the g in the obc in the esg i'm just blown away at this point how he's still ceo tell me about it how they as of right now the sec has done nothing which mm-hmm. would literally pave the way for any company with any ceo to use twitter and the sec now recognizes twitter as a means of communication there was no 8k Ira, when a company makes an official statement, you have to file a – it's a filing called an 8K. 8K. Yeah. So which should have been – so anyway, I don't believe – so I want to get your opinion on this. And I heard you on another podcast say if, if it was a woman <laughs> who was that you know emotional whatever, they would have, they'd have fired her. She'd been gone. I think that – Absolutely. I think the firm is – the board is scared because if they get rid of him, the can of worms, which is waiting to be opened, right. will be there for everybody to see. So just love to get your thoughts on kind of – Elon Musk in general and how this what what's going to happen here you think oh gosh my thoughts on what's going to happen is sitting back and eating popcorn so I I don't know I think you're right they're kind of they've been painted into a corner where he's been allowed to be this bananas for this long and he's so the face of the company and the face of the you know 18 other joke companies that he has um Solar City is not a joke, but you yeah, know, we, we talked about Solar City on the show. Yeah, <laughs> like, that was the jump to shark moment when right. he, that was the fraudulent conveyance, which right. is now in a new, now in a court in New Jersey. It got moved forward anyway. Mm-hmm. Good, yeah. So I yeah I mean just going back to to what you mentioned about the gender thing, it just cracks me up because there is just it there's no world in which you would ever see a woman get even remotely like she would not make it to manager at any company with that kind of behavior. And it's sort of I mean it's funny because people find it endearing when it's Elon Musk and Bill Gross was also around and very harsh and like you know they thought it was like cute and funny and like Warren Buffett says weird things all the time and we're like he's so folksy and adorable like find me a woman who has any degree or is allowed to have that degree of personality in her public brand I just I mean unless she's a caricature and doing some kind of like one of those little you know she's allowed to be one of these little boxes that we put people in so every so often like I just don't like a real executive doing that kind of stuff no, she would have been fired before she even got there. I just, I don't think that that, I think it's so unfair. And everyone's like, oh my God, he's being like so candid <laughs> in this New York Times interview. Right. Mm-mm. Well, I mean, they, I heard names thrown around that could come in and help him or run like uh, Sheryl Sandberg. Right. She's way too smart. I mean, anyone that comes in and actually does their work on it, this isn't right. like CIT goes bankrupt and John Thane comes in and rebuilds the company. Right. This is a company that. They're looking has, for a babysitter. Yeah, they're looking for a babysitter and, and no qualified anybody forget right. woman is going to take that job and so right. i think it's going to be i think it's a house of cards although interestingly there is a, a little theory called the glass cliff which is that women only get to be in like managerial important exciting positions when the thing's already imploding so right. it's kind of like the company's like well we've tried everything we might as well hire a woman right. and i so you may actually see that and also the fact that this is sort of a babysitting role they'll be like you know what we need a caretaker 
we really need to find. Right. I know. And then they're going to come up with a list of women. So, like, it may be a great. But, I mean, look at Marissa Mayer. You have a sinking ship and they're like, here, just take it. And you're famous and you can do it. And obviously it sucked and it didn't do great things for her career. Right. And that's a perfect illustration of the glass cliff. Yep. But maybe that's, you know, that would be, that'd be funny. I always talk about Lehman. And I think they're uh-huh. very, very similar. You had one leader, Dick Fold. Everybody bought into him. Everybody fought. And at the end of the day, all that mattered was the balance sheet. The last quarterly conference call before they filed bankruptcy, mm-hmm. he brought in a woman, and I can't remember her name, um, British woman, to be like CFO. Right. And they talked on the conference call how they're going to split up the company into like a good bank, bad bank, take all right. the mortgage-backed securities. And during the call, the stock was like trading up. And then the days after, and she was the one running the – she had no – it wasn't her fault or anything. She was going right. to be the one running this bank. I, and I, I'm sorry I can't remember her name, but anyway – she was blamed. She wasn't blamed, but of course, the you know there yeah. was some fallout there. She but. was fired and, yeah. <laughs> ha- and was blamed, I think. And yeah. I think it was. It, you're right. She was basically set up to fail exactly. with this, and she's more or less the fall guy. And you're like, yeah, um, well, we we tried a woman, and that sucked. So let's never do that again. Right. So it, it actually like helps to perpetuate the problem, which is adorable. Um, I agree. Um, and then, I mean, just to stay on the topic for a second, Tesla. I I do think that we're close to. Um, I get. I I would put it this way: If I was a portfolio manager and I was an investor short, in the short. in the fund, I'm short already. I'm, for full disclosure, everyone on this call, everyone that's listening to this knows that I'm short. How is a as a portfolio manager can you own this company? And actually, what argument can you make that could possibly and listen? I, it doesn't matter if it's Tesla or anything. I said this is the same thing during the crisis. People that owned all the subprime lenders, people that own Lehman, like, do you guys not see like what is it about this fascination that uh, on any aspect the technology? You know, their 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 technology is now way behind everybody's. In mm. this, you know, autonomous vehicles and so forth. The balance sheet is is horrid, and you you cover the bond market. You can buy that bond at eighty six cents on the dollar, with a five five point three five percent yield, whatever. Get an effective you know yield to maturity of twenty percent over the next couple of years. If you if you argue that you like Tesla, I'm like good. You should go buy the senior bonds because you're certainly first in line to get paid. I just don't understand it. I don't think that the people that own Tesla should be allowed to file any securities class action lawsuit and should not get paid at this point, given all the information that is out on the tape for them to see. So it's kind of like a, a, uh, I think in distressed debt, they say big boy letters go out when you like are, okay, we can go and restrict our trading. We all know the game. We're all like grownups here. I obviously would say big kid letters. So apologies. But um, so is there a point at which you would say there's like a, like a, there's too much information out there. You're being dumb if you're long the stock. Yeah. So you can't, you're no longer allowed to sell. I mean, literally, you're so stupid. <laughs> you're not even allowed to run money. It's really nuts. The, yeah. You know, and so anyway, we don't have to spend any more time on that. But uh, prior to, prior to uh, wrapping up here, just if there's anything else you want to talk about, anything, any sector, um, cannabis is one we talk about every time. You don't have to comment on that if you don't want. Um, I no, I think one thing that you guys touch on a lot, um, sort of like the the foundational thesis here, I think is really interesting that um, I always kind of struggle with this this thought that, you know, oh, these guys did something wrong in financial markets, like lock them up, sue them, get, you know, sue them. They should be stripped of their licenses, et cetera. I think there is – obviously, we need regulations. Obviously, we need sort of, you know, punishments, I guess, for people that – run afoul of regulations. But I think all the time about how imperfect our regulations are and how poorly they fit the markets. And that may be because I talk to people in markets and not lawyers as much. And the people in markets are like, but what do I do with this odd lot bond that doesn't cooperate with the rule that X, Y, Z? So there's so many moments in which when you look at what the regulations say to do and you look at the reality of it, there's no right answer. If the SEC wants to come for you, they're going to come for you. And I don't, I mean, I don't mean to be overly sympathetic here, but it's really difficult to try to make blanket statements and very clear, bright lines 
And But, of course, you need clear, bright lines to make this a trustworthy market where we can all agree on the same things and exchange money and, and you know, trust each other to do that. So I don't know. I think you're, you're on to something really interesting and, and the kind of ongoing conversation that everyone seems to be having on Twitter these days about whether or not we should jail, you know, white-collar criminals. I, I think it's a really interesting question, and I don't think – I mean, personally, I think no. Why? Why do I think no? Yeah. We have so many people in jail. It's full. Like, that doesn't make a difference. Some people, there's, there'll be anarchy. People will do whatever they want and just I know, say, oh, well, why, there's no repercussion. Why would you put a white-collar criminal? Like, isn't jail supposed to be to keep dangerous people off the streets? Like no, if, it's supposed to keep us It's supposed to keep us in a, in a, in a, in a box that basically says, hey, you got to do the right thing. Else, No one's going to do the but right thing. But aren't there other ways to tell people to do the right thing other than putting them in a cage? Well, then say put them in a cage. Have you ever been to some of the uh, prisons? No, I haven't been to prison. The white-collar prisons, you mean? I mean, the white-collar prisons still prison. They still lock the door at night. But, you know, it's a lot of people say it's a country club. I don't think it's a country club. Well, then why are we paying for that as taxpayers? Because, again, if somebody's sitting on Wall Street or somebody, we have a another Madoff situation, someone's just going to run wild and say, well, they're just going to slap me with a fine. I'll do whatever I want. I'll take the fine, and I'm not going to go away from my children or my wife ever again, so I'll just do it again. But, Mayor, you aren't against people that commit crimes on Wall Street going to jail. You think they should go well, I think that's what she was saying. I don't no. know. I don't know. I think it's kind of an open question. I don't think – I mean, it just depends on – I think it depends on what we agree as a, as a society the rules should be. And I think right now it's just not perfectly clear to me that everyone's like, oh, my God, we're not jailing enough bankers. But the the rules to, to jail bankers, like it just – I don't feel like there's a, a matchup between the crime and the punishment. I think that like if you're putting someone – and I – again, like I think the I'm disparity listen. between jails, like that sounds – we should definitely like not have a really nice hotel for a prison. That seems kind of messed up. But I, I just feel like there's – such a knee-jerk reaction where we want to punish people and we want to like rub their face in it and make them really mad and, and you know make them feel really bad about what they did like i don't think that's effective so you, I, if you had two different people walking down the street one was carrying a joint in his pocket and got arrested and put in jail the other one was committing securities fraud right. at the expense of shareholders which one should be in prison neither neither should be in prison yeah you don't think a white-collar criminal banker so you you weren't upset that no one went to jail from the basically from the financial crisis i don't think so what is that you, wrong? I, I, I think, think so. it's a little wrong. <laughs> what what else is going to change behavior? I don't know. You know, you have to change. You have to change behavior. If we're not teaching that, the there are other ways right. to restrict people, though. Like they are, people are terrified of being banned from the industry. Do that. What happens to the older woman who gave two hundred fifty thousand dollars to John Smith and John Bernie Smith? Madoff? Use Bernie Madoff. Yeah, you don't think Bernie what? Madoff should have gone to prison? I mean, I don't. I. By the way, I have a friend of mine doing time with Bernie Madoff. Oh, really? He's yeah. having fun. Is I don't like think Bernie's nice having jails? as fun as people think he's having, <laughs> but um, what happens in that situation? What happens to that, that woman, that, uh, that older woman, $250,000, lost her life savings? Now the guy says, you know, I'm sorry, and, and you know, you come in and you say, I don't think you should be jailed, but and, and now she's out But does she feel better that he's in jail? I think so. I would, I'd love revenge. <laughs> what do you but Mary, there has to be consequences to people. I'm not saying there shouldn't be consequences. Absolutely not. And maybe some people should be in prison, but I don't know where that line is. Like, how do you decide who, like that kid who ju- you just put in jail because he had a joint? Well, the joint situation is that's not different. A, I'm just comparing. It, he wasn't doing. He wasn't harming anybody. He was right. doing something that was, you know. Well, he be, was he was breaking the law, and isn't that harming someone? Mary, well, how would you feel um, if you took a million dollars of your money that you just made on your book that sold? <laughs> and you gave it to, let's call it Danny, and Danny decided to basically, you know, abscond with it. You're going to be happy. He doesn't have to go to prison, right? Well, I just want my money back. But let's You're say he can't getting... give it back to you. Okay, well, then I would sue him. And... Oh, but he has nothing. 
Yeah, I mean, I, in this hypothetical situation, yes, I would be very upset. I'm not really sure why I gave him all my money in the first place, but you just felt that. <laughs> well, he you wanted me to short guy. Tesla. Yeah, right. I did but. want that. Yes. Um, no, I'm not saying that there's no there. There should be no punishment for criminals. That's You're just saying you don't know where the line gets drawn. Exactly, and I think that the way that we do it now is maybe it's the best way we've come up with so far. But there's certainly room for improvement on all sides. I think everyone does. Agrees. Michael Cohen so. deserve to go to jail? I don't think I know his crimes well enough to answer that, actually. Corzine is a perfect example of someone that didn't go to jail. He ruined right. all of MF Global. So let's say you had been working there for 25 years and all your money's gone and you don't want this guy to go. I mean, how he got off with nothing is a miracle. He paid us right. some fine. But I feel like guys like that should be in prison. I feel like without it, you're setting up a but whole But I dinner. feel like we're, the framing of this is the problem, right? I do understand where Mary's going a little bit with where the line gets drawn. You know, if a guy's getting jammed up for taxes. these guys that taxes. are rich on Wall Street are going to be rich after they pay a fine anyway. Because most of the time, it is the company that's paying the fine and the shareholder. So, But isn't that the problem? Why can't you fix that? Why well, do you have you to put him in jail that. instead of fixing that? Well, make them broke. I mean, I'm just saying. Right. Like, it's, and then they'd be really sad. And then I would feel better. Okay. Well, <laughs> all right. So you I just think that the framing of it to say we should put more people in prison because they did more crimes, these bad crimes, they should go to prison, that's the wrong way to think about it in my view. I think that we need to think more holistically about our society and why we knee-jerk want to put everybody in a box and maybe think more I, – I don't know. I just think that there's like a an American response to crime that doesn't actually fix anything. Like the war on drugs – you can talk to anybody in anywhere near enforcement and they're like, oh, we lost. Like, we fully lost that war. Look around. Like, the opioid crisis is killing hundreds of thousands of people and we're just like, oh, at least we have one out of every 48 working age male in prison now. It has had no impact on crime. There's no reason to put all these people in jail and I don't think that adding a bunch of white-collar dudes would help. I actually think replacing white-collar dudes and getting other people out would be better. I but, mean, that's more interesting. I mean, I think we see eye to eye that there's too many people in jail and for minor offenses. I think there's more white collar people in jail. Yeah, they'd be bigger ticket bails for No, I, yeah, absolutely for me, but I just I just see them running wild without the sheriff in town. Me too. But are they already running wild? Like, oh, they've been running wild for how many years, how, Danny? So, it's, so none of it's working. I mean, well, I, no, it's starting to work. It's starting to work. I think you're starting to see a lot more. I mean, is it going to be. more family offices. All right. Well, we'll see. Maybe we'll have to. I'm looking for your next article. I want to see write an article that. White collar criminals yeah, should not go that to jail. Too. I don't want to see. You, I want to see that too. We'll write a book together. All right, sounds it. good. Mary, thank you so much for coming in. Um, really appreciate you. And and when uh, when is the book coming out? You think 2019? Um, yeah, something like that. Early 2019. And I know you're on your way to China. You want to mm-hmm. talk about this last thing fellowship oh. that you just. Sure. Yeah. yeah, it's called the East West Fellowship. I it's basically an exchange. I'm going to China for two weeks to just meet a bunch of cool business people and learn more. I don't know enough, nearly enough, about you know One Belt One Road, private public partnerships, like all of the everything. I'm just really excited to very cool to learn and meet some folks. Yeah. Safe travels and thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks, man. That will wrap it up for this episode of Bell Street. You can subscribe to our podcast at bellstreet.com or any other service that you use to download podcasts. We'll see you next time on Bale Street. I'm Danny Moses. I'm Ira Jettleson.